Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. My conversation today is with Christopher Phelps, Associate Professor at the University of Nottingham and co-author of Radicals in America, the U.S. Left Since the Second World War, published by Cambridge University Press. Phelps and his co-author, Howard Brick, have written a comprehensive history of the American left, beginning with the multiple strands of radicalism prior to 1940. The book traces its development to recent movements such as Occupy Wall Street, Queer Nation, and Earth First. As a heterogeneous group, the left has sought to expand personal freedom and social, economic, and political equality to the broad distribution of power. Instead of progressive reforms of existing systems, radicals have called for a change in the structures of society. Under a large ideological tent, the movement has included socialists, communists, labor activists, anarchists, and pacifists working against the hierarchies of class, race, and sex. From the new left of the 1960s to the sanctuary movement of the religious left, as political activists, they have challenged all forms of inequality, militarization, capitalism, and ecological disaster. Radicals have continually struggled with factional disputes, co-optation by the mainstream, and a lack of a coherent and unifying political strategy. Currently at low ebb, radicalism is facing extreme forms of capitalism, police states, resource scarcity, and a dystopian future calling for a new realism and for reaching out to a wider constituency. The authors argue that the effectiveness of radical movements must reflect egalitarian and democratic values while retaining a concern for the rights of the individual. Here's my conversation with Christopher Phelps. Now let me introduce you to the author, Christopher Phelps. Christopher, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Lily. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. There's a lot to talk about in your book. It's very dense with ideas, I might say, and that is in a good way. But first, I want you to tell us about yourself and your background and how you came to write Radicals in America with Howard Brick. Okay, very good. I'm a teacher of American studies in Britain. I'm really a historian trained in the United States. I um, actually first studied at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, under Casey Blake, who's now at Columbia. Uh, and then I did a master's degree with Howard Brick at the University of Oregon when he was there. Now he's now a professor of history at the University of Michigan. And when I was at Oregon, I was his teaching assistant in a class on the history of American radicalism. This is 25 years ago. He was very young. I feel like I'm still young, even though I just turned 50 this year. <laughs> uh, and uh, we worked together on this course. And then in my own subsequent career, I taught radicalism for many years. Uh, we both have a interest in the topic. And 
I eventually went on and did a PhD at the University of Rochester, working with Christopher Lash and Howard Westbrook, uh, uh, Robert Westbrook, and others there, um, and wrote a book on the early radical years of Sidney Hook. So I've I've long been interested in radicalism. I actually was turning to other topics and other problems, but Howard invited me onto this book, and I considered it an honor to work with him and. Uh, uh, and a really a kind of a real opportunity to put together thinking with somebody of that caliber about the topic and uh, combine our mutual abilities. So that's how it came about. Well, one of the reviews that I read point, uh, said that this was an example of a committed scholarship. Would you accept that uh, label? I suppose so. I guess it's a kind of complicated commitment, and that's evident in the work. I mean, I think, uh, I suppose the way to put it is that we're affirmative about radicalism as a tradition. We're interested in it, not just intellectually, but because our politics are, um, are quite to the left. On the other hand, we're trying to go about the book in a way that is honest about various deficiencies and mistakes uh, in the tradition, problems that we see even of main currents of it. Uh, and so in that sense, it's it's not a kind of cheerleading book, I wouldn't think. No, I, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair uh, articulation of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question that comes up, of course, is what is radicalism? Mm-hmm. And uh, what kind of radicalism we're talking about? I want to talk a little bit about the concepts in the book before we actually get into the narrative. You have a very extensive narrative, and it's mm-hmm. you lay it out. Uh, lots of actors, lots of events, lots of people. But the concepts uh, in terms of what is defined radicalism in in a situation where basically the liberal state is dominant. The liberal states really sort of has the upper hand what mm-hmm. is radicalism in that scenario right well that's an excellent question uh the subtitle of the book is the u.s left since the second world war as you know so uh we aren't using radical in the common journalistic sense these days of just meaning an extremist of any variety whether white supremacist or islamist or what have you um and we do see that word cropping up increasingly in the electoral sphere and mass media these days in regard to such, uh, you know, somebody takes over a uh, um, forest facility in Oregon or there's some sort of bombing in San Bernardino or something like that and uh, a killing in San Bernardino and, and it gets tarred with radicalism. But um, we recognize the word can be used in that meaning. But for us, we're getting back to the Latin root of the word, which uh, it shares in common with radish. Um, In other words, it gets to the root. That's the original Latin meaning of the word radical. So a radical isn't somebody who just wants to um, prune or take policy measures at the surface of the society that would ameliorate conditions, but wants to go all the way down to eliminate the source of the problems that they're trying to address. So the root of war, the root of economic inequality, the root of gender 
inequality, the root of environmental destruction. And radicals tend to see that as in a system, you know, a social system that has evolved historically to benefit certain people's power and profit, uh, but often not the interests of the social majority. So radicals um, are those who see, who have far-reaching ambitions of sweeping transformations um, and are political visionaries really calling for an alternative future set of configurations of social arrangements. And that's what we mean by radical in our book. Okay, and it's not just fanaticism. No. Right. It, that's how it, I, picked, I picked that up. Yes, exactly right. Now, the issue here, of course, is you're talking about going to the root and trying to completely have new, complete new structures. Mm -hmm. And that would call for not just a social, but a complete, a political revolution that could possibly entail overthrowing the current liberal system of government. Mm -hmm. Now, Now, so what I see, though, in your subjects, that they're more about, they're more radical reformers, radical liberals. They want more, of more a more expansive, op- more open liberalism rather mm-hmm. than overthrowing liberalism. Mm-hmm. So that's, I'm having, I have a little tension there between, are these radical liberals or are they really wanting to replace the liberal government, the modern state, with something altogether new? Right. Well, I should just say that in the book we deal with a whole variety, a, a set of constellations of radicals, really. So we're in some moments dealing with communists and others with socialists and others with radical pacifists and others with radical environmentalists. Radical feminists, uh, etc., anarchists—you name it—and so the 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 meaning, the project of radicalism is often one that's contested within radicalism, and these radicals aren't always on the same page about precisely what the key source of oppression or injustice is, and what the key measures needed to uh, achieve equality and freedom, and so forth. So we ourselves are quite ecumenical and broad in in our understanding of radicalism and are drawing them all together and are taking them uh, as they saw themselves uh, rather than worrying over who the proper radicals are. Uh, The thing you keep getting at in these questions that I've been skirting a bit, I suppose, is the question of liberalism and radicalism. And I think you're right to see that as kind of running through the theme of the book. Uh, it's, It's since the Second World War, and we kind of start with the 30s and 40s and then go through the great uh, radicalization of the 60s. Um, you might think there, say that there are sort of two phases of the liberal order in the period of the book we're talking about. And in that period, sort of from the 30s to the 60s, there's the classic New Deal order in which um, an active government that intervenes and regulates the economy and so forth is favored even by establishment politicians and tolerated by corporate America. And then there's a new kind of liberalism, the kind of um, neoliberalism or conservatism, whatever you want to call it, um, that also is ostensibly a democratic liberal state, but is a very different kind of political economy, um, and the market reigns supreme. Radicals in both phases found 
liberal society insufficient. But the relationship between radicalism and liberalism is complicated because sometimes radicals are what you might call liberals in a hurry. And in other periods, radicals are arch critics of liberals for actually being kind of tacit conservatives uh, of being so complicit and embedded in the system as it is that they are actually obstacles to the kinds of transformations radicals think necessary. Um, and again, on that question, we're kind of agnostic. I mean, we don't we don't try to spell out a kind of grand theory of the relationship of radicalism and liberalism. We're telling the narrative, and we understand that the the way that the two camps, if you will, saw each other across time differed. Um, I think the reason I brought that up is because even today, you know, we've got a situation when uh, uh, lots of people use the, you see the language in popular discourse, revolution. You know, we're calling for a revolution. But if we really think about radicals calling for a revolution, when you think about what that really means, we're talking about a, a violent overthrow of the existing liberal state. But I understand. Well, this. not and always. And I don't think that's in all quarters. And I think that's what you're saying, that there's a variety mm-hmm. of radicalisms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the um, the language that you're using is language that sometimes some radicals have accepted for sure. And uh and some critics of radicalism have also accepted. But, of, you know, for me, working on the book, actually, it was uh, illuminating. I learned tremendously working on this book. And one of the things I feel like I self-educated myself about immensely and came to much greater depth of respect uh, for were the radical pacifists. I mean, we have a the society itself is so pervaded with violence in a systemic way, given the importance of the Pentagon in American society. And the the radical pacifists were key both to the black freedom movement and the civil rights movement and also to the anti-war movements of the whole period that we're talking about. Um, So I would resist the association of radicalism with violence because some of the most radical people in the book were principled pacifists who were principled nonviolent. Uh, activists um, the the rest of of radicalism I believe we don't really state this flat out in the book but you know if we're going to address this question I'll just say that I think more radicals are actually more inclined to be open to armed self-defense than they are for active violent means of trying to overthrow the state or something like that they in our conception, what radicals are really about is trying to find ways to build social, uh, substantial social opinion, if not majorities, that are capable of affecting change. And the question of violence is kind of by the by, because actually what they're trying to do is build democratic consent. Um, now, your point about how that kind of blends into liberalism, I think, is a fair point. And those borderlines are kind of amorphous, and, and there is an overlap. There's no doubt. I mean, somebody who's a very ardent, principled liberal, in some contexts, can look very radical, especially, say, the McCarthy period, if they're standing up for civil liberties um, or other periods. And, you know, um, I, I accept that that. There's no absolute 
contradiction between radicalism and liberalism. I accept that. Okay. Uh, what I was surprised to see was anarchism in there, as because anarchism, by definition, is wants the overthrow of the government, and maybe my may not be by violent means. It may be mm. by just letting it implode. Uh, so, why did you put anarchism in there, and how does it fit with the rest of the radical tradition? Well, <clears throat> radicalism. If radicalism is the positing of alternative futures uh, that are fundamentally different from the society of the present, uh, this would include, say, a society of complete uh, gender inequality or gender irrelevance. It would include a society that's premised on no violence. Uh, It would include a society in which there's no need for a repressive state, prisons, uh, and institutions are self-organized by communities and are arranged by consent. Uh, And all of that is basically I'm describing anarchism as anarchists see it. And anarchists are definitely radicals in that you know they they believe that a society that a society of law and state police prisons and so forth is coercive and it coerces the individual and that instead we should have some sort of arrangement that allows pure freedom now i have to admit and I think this is true of Howard as well, although I shouldn't speak for my co-author, although it was, a, it was definitely a co-authored book in our thinking, um, that, you know, I'm not really a sympathizer of radicalism. Nonetheless, I think there are periods where, I mean, of anarchism. anarchism. I'm not, yeah, not, pardon me, uh, of anarchism. Uh, nonetheless, there are periods when anarchists are extremely creative and important and, and from, and there are anarchists from whom one can learn a great deal. One is Dwight MacDonald in the Second World War, who was a kind of a narco-pacifist, uh, a critic of the bomb and a critic of total war and the way in which that was being waged, not just by the Germans, but by the Allies. Uh, and <clears throat> then another case in which anarchism flourishes is the post-1991 period and down to the present where anarchism has had quite a bit of influence actually in American radicalism. Uh, and part of that is because of the failings of the left that was more authoritarian. So I, I think that it's not entirely a bad impulse. Um, Fair enough. Uh, the, uh, the question of utopianism, and when I'm, I'm bringing up this term, I don't mean it in necessarily in a negative uh, connotation. Okay. Right. Yep. Uh, is utopianism or some sense of utopianism, some vision of you know, utopia, a uh, necessary aspect of radicalism? Uh, I think so, actually. I mean, radicals are always called irrational, dreamers, um, impractical, utopian, and so forth. And then, of course, more negative words, even dangerous and irresponsible and reckless. Um, but if you think about utopianism as no place, is the literal meaning of the of utopia, all radicals, in a sense, are utopian in that they're positing some future, whether it's socialist or other form of egalitarianism or anarchism or what have you. They're positing a future that is not our current reality. 
Uh, and they're always called utopian. I mean, it was utopian to imagine a world without slavery, and it was utopian to imagine a world without Jim Crow racial segregation. And it's, um, it's utopian to now imagine a world of economic equality. Uh, and it's precisely having that future vision that allows radicals to make fundamental criticisms of the society that they're in. Um, the, the, the argument we make is that radicals are inevitably, by virtue of being radicals, on the margin of the society of their day, that they are marginal um, from the thought and practice of their time. Uh, that's what makes them radicals, and that's why there's an association with fanaticism or extremism or any of the other words we've bandied about. And in order to, however achieve their political objectives, they must somehow make inroads into a mainstream. Uh, and that means building support for their uh, ideas. And this means envisioning democratic majorities. So radicals can both be stigmatized and, you know, bearing the weight of social opprobrium. And, um, you know, if you think about periods like the McCarthy period where they're really on the ropes and it's really hard to be a radical and they're really um, demonized, uh, that that's an extreme degree of what almost inevitably happens to radicals in any period. They're always, you know, scorned and they and they have to accept the scorn of their society precisely because they're objecting so ardently to that society. And yet at the same time, they have to envision themselves as the bearers of a true democratic majority that will really represent the interests of all much more better, much better than the existing set of arrangements. And in order to get there, they have to posit futurities. They have to posit future arrangements, call them utopias, if you will, that, allow people to uh, uh, come over to this kind of perspective and to this idea and to see what could be instead. Um, and so I do think that radicals and radicalism and utopianism are interlinked. Now, that doesn't mean I think that radicals are impractical. On the contrary, we try to argue time and again that radicals actually were able to get things done and probably things wouldn't have been pushed along without them. Like I said, I don't, I don't see, uh, utopianism as you're talking about it as necessarily a negative thing because every, every political, uh, perspective has to have a vision of something, uh, that you're working towards. Mm-hmm. But utopianism, of course, utopia is, has been historically very much linked to religious movements and religious, uh, mm. prophets. And I was sort of taken back by the fact that in your book, uh, you don't deal a lot with religion, uh, uh, like the, the concept of the kingdom of God as a, as a, a concept of something that can be realized in history. Mm-hmm. You don't really talk much about the, how religion runs it through the pacifism, through labor movements, through the new left, through feminism, through – there's just so, all these movements that you talk about. There is this sort of religious uh, strain that goes through them. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is that? Well, I mean, we, I think we mentioned things along the way, and then we have a breakout section in the chapter on the 80s where we talk um, fairly extensively about the religious left. Um, but 
uh, one reason, I suppose, in self-defense is simply that we're telling such a complex story uh, that there are so many strands as it is <laughs> trying to keep track of them I, I, all. That's fair. Um, I mean, you're trying, and, you can only tell – you can't tell the whole exhaustive story. It's very difficult no, to do that. Yeah. And the other, the other is that I do think the uh, – you know – that the left has had major contributors uh, and radicalism has had major contributors who are religious, the, um, you know, Martin Luther King and his kind of social gospel, Malcolm X uh, and his brand of Islam uh, and so forth. We can think of many examples. Those are just kind of towering figures. Um, but, but as a whole, the movement's, that they contributed to even uh, are secular in that they don't require religious loyalty and they don't have one professed religious faith. That's sort of the nature of America, um, but it's especially the na- nature of the left. And then there have been, of course, many radicals who are, if not atheists, at least uh, at the very least sort of, agnostic or secular. Yeah, what you're saying and, is the absence of religious dogma within these movements. Yes. Yeah, but I exactly. was tying it more to I was uh, tied it more to ut- the concept of utopia, utopia uh and how utopia is really wrapped up with a lot of prophetic religious traditions as a vision uh if not necessarily a a dogma, a religious dogma. But we don't have to go. I think you've answered that question. Now, what I want to yeah. do now is kind of change gears because you've talked about some a lot of concepts. I want to talk actually get back into the the narrative of the book. You begin basically with the roots and origins of radicalism post World War. Mm-hmm. You begin before the war, and you talk about some of those roots and origins and the international connections. Mm-hmm. So, uh, talk a little bit about that, that first, the scenario you set up. There were all kinds of people involved in this. Communists, socialists, anarchists, radicals, labor movement. There's a yeah. gazillion different groups all vying for something. Yeah. No, you're right. We, I'd say there are sort of two parts to what we do because in the introduction, we also establish a longer American radical tradition running back to the abolitionists in part because the abolitionists, uh, this is in the antebellum period and they're the crusaders against slavery and they were such a, um, excellent example for us of how radicals who were, um, hated at the time managed to nonetheless build pressure and seize moments of opportunity that allow their ideas, however improbably, to become national policy in a, in a flash almost in the course of the Civil War. Um, but then we, in the, the chapter you're talking about, you're absolutely right, that we want to lay a foundation. I mean, one, one of the things we realized is that if we start with the Second World War, the most important organization at that point is the Communist Party of the United States uh, in the center of gravity on the left. And you can't really understand American radicalism without understanding that. But you can't understand it at the time of the Second World War without understanding the Depression and what it wrought uh, and what was going on on the left. And so we start with the rise of the Communist Party and the organizing of the Communist Party. Um, one thing we're doing that's a bit different than so many 
narrative histories of the American left is that we don't just start and end with the Communist Party, however. I mean, there's there's a tendency to sort of have a chapter on the Communist Party and a chapter on McCarthyism and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, history is really messy, and there were a whole lot of people on the left who were dissatisfied sometimes from the beginning and sometimes along the way they became disillusioned and yet remained radicals. They still were critical of capitalism, still critical of racism and just the nature of the American society, and yet were also critics of Soviet-centered communism. And so we try to tell this, the different rivulets of the left, hopefully in a way that uh, general readers even can understand, which are trying to be as clear as possible about a complicated history. But, you know, we want to tell about... S- socialists who weren't communists and about communists and give them some do and explain why they were so appealing in their time and place and yet at the same time be attentive to the flaws in their project that led to them being vulnerable to the onslaught of McCarthyism in the post-war period. So we're really trying to do all of that in the 30s chapter, establish the kind of classic Marxist left that was focused on the labor movement, uh, that was animated by socialist or communist ideals and that had a variety of positions in relationship to the Soviet Union, um, which was very much loomed very much large in the minds of the committed radicals of the day because it had been the first successful workers' revolution. And whether you supported the outcome or thought what was going on under Stalin was a terrible, monstrous deformation of socialism, um, your your kind of orientation toward that was quite um, pronounced. So that's the left we're trying to establish in that bit. Yeah, and so uh, you talk about a, a wide variety of groups and you're able to point out a couple of dangers to radicalism, which is sectarianism, factional disputes that continually mm-hmm. split the movement, and opportunistic co-optation by the mainstream. Yes. And you talk about and then it gets into the New Deal. Yes. Discuss that a little bit. Uh, well, we... Um, this is in tacking between margin and mainstream which radicals inevitably do, uh, they have both those dangers, the the radicals who become comfortable with their marginality and, you know, become kind of encased in a self-righteousness, can be very sectarian and simply disparaging all around them and taking comfort from their marginality as if it proves a rectitude. Whereas radicals who are seeking the mainstream, but do so in a manner that instead of upholding their principle and retaining their principle, ends up watering down their program so much just to make it acceptable uh, that they no longer indeed are radicals. That's opportunism. Uh, and so it really flows from our analysis of margin and mainstream, the problem of sectarianism and the problem of opportunism. Uh, and we saw we see that actually in the zigs and zags of Communist Party policy, because during the Second World War, the communists who are, um, of course, the benchmark of communist thought and practice is the Soviet Union. And once Hitler invades the Soviet Union in 1941, forget the earlier period of the Hitler-Stalin pact, but the 1941 invasion of the of the Soviet Union by Hitler means that the American communists are all out for the Second World War. They want maximum war production. They want to win the war because they know that that will defeat Hitler and that will save the Soviet Union. 
And in doing so, they become, you know, opponents of strikes in the plants and they want to, uh, you know, they're not racist, but they also don't really want militant assertion of racial inequality that would disrupt war production in any way. Um, and so they become moderates and kind of conservative. And in fact, their thought and practice is they dissolve the Communist Party under Earl Browder and and that's a good example of opportunism. But then after the war, when they go back on that policy and the Cold War is kicking in and now they're really arch critics of America and they no longer have that kind of grand alliance scheme, uh, they become very ardent um, in their beliefs, but very isolated in their beliefs. And that's the kind of sectarian moment. Um, yeah, go ahead. There's a concept. There's a concept that you that you bring up. Uh, what is the idea, I think just for the listener, to describe the idea of a popular front? Ah, uh, yes. Well, the popular uh, front is the notion that liberals and radicals uh, can work in coalition and in tandem uh, to broadly oppose the right, basically. That's the gist. Um, now, that's an abstract expression of it. In, in reality, what it meant is that communists should unite with liberals in their various countries. It came out of the experience of Spain and France. Um, it came out of, in fact, Germany. Germany had had the most powerful left, um, very, very powerful left. And when the Nazis took over, of course, um, you know, even before the real um, concentration camp activity against the Jews, the Nazis were crushing the labor movement, crushing the socialists, crushing the so so uh, communists and arresting their leaderships and so forth. Um, that was a, cat you know, a catastrophic defeat for the world left. Um, and so the communist movement after that, They'd had a very sectarian policy that helped lead to that. But then they turned tables and came over to the popular front, which was essentially we'll ally with any forces that are democratic against the fascists. Um, in the United States, it basically meant support for Roosevelt's New Deal. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's just the gist of the popular front. It's a it's a it's a. It's a policy that probably most people who are sympathetic to the Communist Party and the historiography um, are very favorable toward. That's sort of the moment, 1935 to 1939, is the high point of the Popular Front that historians tend to see as the best moment of the Communist Party. It seems like the, uh, the role of radicals is to move the center, uh -huh. or the center being the liberal center, and the center doesn't move. <laughs> Is to reform itself unless you have pressure from these radical, the radical side that's pushing it. And it seems that that's what the radical is serving. That's the role they end up serving in, in, mm. in liberal systems is sort of the, the push, uh, to, to reform itself. Even they can do that. There's no doubt they can do that. Um, I mean, they themselves may have, may harbor much grander ambitions than you're giving them, but. Right. Um, <laughs> right, right. They, 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 they maybe wouldn't be satisfied with that. Um, but in practice, I think it's true. Um, you know, there's something to the idea that it's radicalism that puts the spine in the backbone of liberalism and that in turn moves the center left. And that when, you, you know, it's certainly true that in any period where you see a decline of radicalism, you also see a decline of liberalism and you also see a strengthening of the right. That tends to be true. That's very well said. Um, 
Now, in the 1950s, uh, radicalism became defined by its opponents. Uh-huh. And, and you, you, you kind of demonstrate that in terms of the Red Scare. Uh, but it didn't finish it. But they became more defined not by their own program, but by what others said about them. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, one of the ironies of McCarthyism is that it's precisely because the left had already suffered a bit of a decline um, and was fairly marginal that McCarthyism was able to create the myth of a grand radical conspiracy on the verge of taking over the federal government and establishing a communist state. Um, and in countries like Italy and France, where you did have mass communist parties coming out of the Second World War because they'd led the anti-fascist resistance and they had a lot of credibility with the people of those countries for that action, um, you didn't have such a red scare, even though in those countries the prospect of communists forming a government was much more likely than in the United States. Um, so yes, and then you 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 definitely had a uh, ability uh, uh, for all sorts of um, fear mongering, uh, which was done both to the Communist Party in a distorted way. I mean, um, flawed as the Communist Party was, uh, it didn't deserve some of the abuse heaped upon it for sure. Um, and individual members of the Communist Party deserved to be judged on their own terms rather than painted with a broad brush. Um, but also, you know, it was a it was a period where then that was used to tar the entirety of the left. So it was just a miserable period to be a radical. <laughs> but what's interesting, what you say here is that even though there was this decline of, of the left, because it was the opponents of it were able to take the upper hand and defining its parameters and it's characterizing it in a negative way that there emerged uh, in the 1950s, that there were the seeds there, the emergence of the non-communist left that, and that that's what you, we ends, ends up being the new left uh, with civil rights uh, movements, third world movements, bohemian cultural radicalism, all these mm-hmm. sorts of other movements that were non-communist mm-hmm. uh, emerged to become the new left. Talk about that transition. I thought there's a very interesting transition there. Yeah, we, um, you know, we we say there have always been two criticisms of capitalism. One is for its economic inequity and injustice and inequality, and the other is for its uh, stifling of creativity and so forth. So there's sort of the bohemian criticism of capitalism, um, you know, the man and the market and all of that. Um, And then there's the more straight left criticism of capitalism. Um, and in a sense, the Communist Party is, is, is very straight arrow culturally and yet very radical economically. Um, and it's a, it's a paradox that out of the McCarthy period, which you would think would finish off American radicalism, actually just clears the decks in a way for the emergence of a different 
kind of radicalism. And we trace its origins back to the Second World War period. We see the conscientious objectors to the Second World War, the critics of bureaucracy and the bomb um, and so forth as kind of the germinal seeds of both the black freedom movement and the anti-war movement of the 60s. And then, as you say, in the 50s, the Beats, the Mattachine Society, which was the first gay organization formed by people who had left the Communist Party or been um, kicked out, uh, and uh, various kinds of stirrings in Bohemian America, the howl of uh, Allen Ginsberg and um, and. This is all kind of prefigures and helps create the new left. Um, so when that bursts on the scene, most notably with the 1960 sit-ins that led to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee being created, um, there's a there's a kind of um, a stew of things that students are acting on that are already in prior currents. Uh, The the key distinction, of course, is that party and class are the crux for the 1930s to 1940s um, left that became called the old left. Uh, You know, all kinds of radicals believed that a socialist party was necessary to organize workers into a revolutionary force that could supplant capitalism. And that was true of the Communist Party, but true of very many of their critics as well, you know, Trotskyists and so forth. Um, But labor and the party are not really the rub for the new left. Uh, The new left is much more about individual conscience and about a kind of free-floating democratic kind of organization that's uh, constituted by its members uh, and is not just interested in point of production, workplace activism or anything like that, is looking to various kinds of social institutions from the university to... um, to schools and so forth to try to transform. So there is a kind of new vibe to the new left. It's not just that the left revives and that's new. It's that the character of the left shifts, as you say. Now, you you talk about internationalism, uh, international connections before World War II. And Mm -hmm. then we see in the 1950s this connection between the left, this new left that's emerging, and the third world. Can you talk mm-hmm. about how the, the role of the third world in in uh, the ideology or the thinking of American radicals? Yes. Uh, no, I think that's an important strand of the book. I mean, we've got so many things going on, race, gender, um, class, and internationalism is a big part of it. Uh, and the the... the the center of radical imagination by the middle of the 60s has shifted away from the Soviet Union, which had preoccupied its critics as well as its uh, uh, endorsers, and toward the third world, as you say. The the beginning, of course, is the decolonization movements in Africa. Uh, and this includes Kwame Nkrumah and... Nasser in Egypt uh, and so forth, all of whom are inspiring to black uh, radicals, including the proto-black power types like Malcolm X, uh, but also even including the more mainstream ones like Martin Luther King. Uh, and that, that beginning of the 60s is very much a time when the fact that black nations that had always been subjugated and held to be 
inferior were now self-governing with their own black leaderships. That was an inspiration to black radicals in particular who understood uh, its implications and what it meant for the ability of blacks to be full citizens and to enjoy power in their communities. It meant, um, you know, legitimation of their own quest for freedom. Um, now, by the late 60s, of course, Asia is very much figuring in this because uh, partly of the Vietnam War, which accelerates in 1965, and a good part of the new left gets focused on opposing the Vietnam War, uh, partly because of developments in China, which are not fully uh, accurately understood, uh, but which the Cultural Revolution seems to be a kind of mass youth-led uh, anti-bureaucratic process within a communist state that looks more attractive to a lot of young radicals than um, than the Soviet Union by that point, which seems like a gray and dull bureaucratic state with no imagination whatsoever. And likewise, Cuba um, and Fidel Castro and Che Guevara in Cuba are, um, seem to be a new kind of revolution led by bearded ones who uh, have a, a kind of um, spirit and the, you know, the, uh, it's, it's their kind of model of guerrilla war and of, um, opposition to empire uh, that in the period of the Vietnam War captivates the new left and then spills over into all kinds of movements of people of color. So there's an Asian American movement and a Mexican Chicano pride movement and a black uh, liberation movement and uh, various people start to draw analogies to themselves and their culture within the United States and to say we too have been colonized and we too want to be liberated and so the third worldism is not just something external and in the developing world as it were but is a kind of thing that captivates the imagination of a lot of Americans who in identity based movements start to think of themselves as colonized subjects who are freeing themselves from that by asserting their own independence. Um, and that's a very late 60s kind of development. Now, when you start talking about the new left, your chapter, you, you talk about uh, some key features of the new left. Uh, talk about the moral power of the civil rights movements, the importance of women, community organizing, a dynamic between liberalism and radicalism, uh-huh. youth upsurge, and the coexistence of nonviolent resistance and armed self-defense. Uh-huh. These all sound to me like a popular front. Uh, except that the administration is not Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal, which is passing the Wagner Act for Labor and passing Social Security and taking on the economic royalists. Instead, by 1965 to 1968, you have Lyndon Baines Johnson, who has escalated the war in Vietnam, um, despite passing the Voting Rights and Civil Rights Act and declaring a war on poverty, uh, is devoting huge resources to a war that you know, seems to be pulverizing and annihilating a whole people in Vietnam. Uh, and so you actually have, instead of a popular front in that period, uh, a period of great agony and strain and division between liberals and radicals. And there's a sort of acceleration of radicals as critics of liberalism in that period. Um, and a lot of liberals, but there is a dynamic going on where a lot of the liberals are becoming radicals. Well, that's true. And a lot of the radicals are becoming, the the old radicals becoming more conservative, liberals, Mm. 
there is a reshifting. I mean, there's a realignment uh, among all these sorts of strains of political thought in the in the yeah. 1960s with the new left. Yeah, I mean, we 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 don't in the book we actually sort of eschew historiographical argument. We don't have space to do it for one thing, but we also just made a kind of um, intellectual choice that we wouldn't spend a lot of time explaining all the historians we agree with and all the ones we disagree with. (laughs) So uh, we wanted the book to be readable by somebody who's 20 years old in a classroom or picking it up on the shelf for themselves and, and, and to be readable by that fictitious general reader that we're all seeking. But, um, if I were to say what we're doing in a 60s chapter, though, to a professional historian like yourself, it's that uh, we we want to get away from the good 60s, early 60s, bad 60s, uh, late 60s thing, except that we're not we also don't see the late 60s as just all good. Um, so we're a little bit different than some of the same people who have been doing that for a while um, in that we see the late 60s as this immense radicalization, in fact, probably the most impressive, deep and wide radicalization of the entire period that we're talking about. I mean, really, and radicalism itself is proliferating in all sorts of complicated ways that are quite uh, innovative. Um, So, you know, you get women's liberation and gay liberation and you get all those third worldist movements we were just talking about. And, you, you know, you just get uh, you know, from uh, movements against authority in the prisons and the schools. And I mean, it really is quite hydra headed um, in its complexity and its scope. And there, there's just so much activity of such breadth going on. Um, and we're sympathetic to the, this radicalization and we're sympathetic uh, to this, the revolutionary kinds of um, thinking, uh, meaning not, not the fantasias of armed struggle that start to crop up and are ultimately debilitating for the new left. Um, we're not talking about the people who mechanically said we're going to be ho- like Ho Chi Minh here in the streets of Chicago. Um, w- but what I'm talking about are the people who are saying, let's rethink, you know, uh, society so that instead of sexual repressiveness and puritanism, we have sexual choice uh, and consenting adults can, um, you know, love whomever they wish. Uh, that sort of radical impulse, which is very radical, if you think about the 50s family, comes straight out of that late 60s moment um, with some predecessors like we were talking about, but but becomes achieves velocity in the late 60s. And same with gender uh, equality, which we now take for granted. I mean, in the 60s, you still had Yale and Princeton and Harvard, all male. You still had pink, um, you know, pink uh, collar work in segregated columns in the newspaper and so forth. And it's the women's liberation and all of its militancy that challenges that. So um, we're very sympathetic to the late 60s radicalization. And we see it as just a kind of impressive moment. Um, but it also kind of undoes itself. And we're attentive to the reasons for that. Yeah, because it seems like, you know, the 1960s were a period of, of, of economic abundance, uh-huh. Um, prosperity, you know, the war machine was going and it was helping the economy tremendously. And yes. it seems like these radical movements were moving more towards cultural issues, sexuality, you know, gender, race, uh, uh, and less emphasis on economic structures. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, um, to some extent, that's correct. Uh, 
there's a lot of concern with poverty. Uh, the Students for a Democratic Society had the Economic Research and Action Projects, which in, went into poor neighborhoods. Uh, Martin Luther King is leading a poor people's campaign uh, in that's going to march on Washington in 1968 when he's shot, and he's shot in Memphis supporting garbage workers who are out on strike. Um, so, you know, you you can look around and you can see plenty of um, of of kinds of attempts of radicals to act on economic agendas. They're hampered somewhat by the increased conservatism of the labor movement itself. I mean, in that Cold War period, the American labor movement's bureaucracy is led by George Meany, who completely supports the war in Vietnam and is hostile to demands of black workers for greater... Um, you know, greater role in the unions and 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 more e- racial equality in the workplace. Um, so the the left and labor have a difficult time in that period. Unlike the 30s, when the left and labor are virtually inseparable, um, and you know, I, I'm I'm viewing labor as sort of the axiom of any kind of left wing attempt to deal with economic issues because I I, th- I think that's the case. The new left. Um, has those kinds of issues rise to the fore more in this kind of 73, 75 period once the recession hits in the 70s. Um, but we argue, you're, you're, you're picking up on this, that um, one of the reasons why there is a 60s radicalization, people always said then and say now, you know, how could these students be radical? They were the most privileged the world had ever seen. They had this virtual full employment economy. Um, they were almost guaranteed a job. What was there to be upset about? Um, but that's almost precisely the point. It's when you're able to take for granted that your future is wide open and that you have many, many opportunities that you're most likely to be vocal and most likely to have the courage of your convictions because um, it's, it's, it's when you're insecure and you're worried that you're more likely to just want to focus on narrow careerism or keep your, you know, keep your head down and, and play it safe. Um, so there's, a, there's an association of kind of economic crisis with radicalization. But interestingly enough, in that great period of affluence and prosperity in the post-war period, you get the greatest radicalization of American society. Um, and it partly is an outgrowth of that. But it's interesting, later on in the book, you talk about the fact that even as you have more uh, individual freedom, you know, in terms of women's rights, gay rights, African-Americans, you have more of that, you still, uh, because there's not, because there's a liberalization of all those kinds of norms, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's more democracy because you have to have economic power to, in order to exercise many of those, you know, individual uh, liberal freedoms you were granted. Right. Um, this is, and this is the problem. (laughs) Yeah. And this gets back to your uh, other point about liberal society and radicals. Um, that is for us, radical idealism centers on the old French revolution slogan, liberty, equality, fraternity. Um, and for, we could change that to sort of freedom, uh, equality, uh, and solidarity. But we also, as you're getting at, fold in democracy as a key value. So if we take those four values, freedom, equality, solidarity, 
and democracy. Liberal society favors liberty, freedom, and so forth ostensibly. And if you think about the contemporary right or you watch a Republican debate, it's all about freedom conceived of merely as individualism and merely as opposition to government. Um, But the left values freedom deeply. That's why there was a black freedom movement, and that's why the left sought freedom for women and freedom for people to be gay or lesbian or what have you. Uh, And But it joins those to a vision of human equality, of solidarity that that goes beyond the compartmentalizations and alienations of individualistic society and democracy, in other words, popular power. Um, And liberalization over the last period since the 70s hasn't panned out the way the, the radical 60s people uh, saw it really. I mean, they've, they wrested tremendous freedoms, uh, and they broke the society wide open in many ways. But their own vision of equality and solidarity haven't been realized, uh, and nor is democracy. In fact, what we have right now is a kind of liberalization, uh, but combined with immensity, such immensity of inequality of wealth, uh, which then correlates to inequality of power. Uh, that democracy itself is increasingly threatened, and so is solidarity. And we argue that that means that those freedoms, those supposed freedoms that seem to be rooted in place, are actually vulnerable too. And I think that analysis has actually been borne out pretty well by the new popularity of Donald Trump this year. Um, I mean, we didn't write it with him in mind. We didn't. Well, I'm not saying we were prescient or we saw that coming. Nobody did. But the fact that somebody would become the top polling Republican candidate uh, and Cruz is a little better on this question, who wants to build a gigantic wall and um, who's calling all Mexican immigrants rapists and um, uh, and so forth. We're seeing we're seeing a, riot, a return of a kind of naked bigotry uh, and it's linked um, you know, it's it's linked to the people who are opposing the measures that would actually uh, be able to undo the inequality that's emerged in American society since the 60s. Basically, personal liberation is not meaningful unless you have economic and social equality. That's it. Yeah, that's and, the- and, 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 and right now, uh, corporate capitalism is basically telling us that they can give us all kinds of personal liberation. That's right. I mean, that's being offered all the time, every kind of personal liberation. Yeah, it's the economic and social equality part <laughs> that is uh, really not working. Right. Okay. Um, Let me ask you another question. I want to go back because uh, we only have a few minutes left. And uh, in the night by 1980s, what you see is you see a, a, a diffusion of, of movements, all kinds of new movements, fragmentation of movements, and then in the 1980s, you you highlight. The Rainbow Coalition and Jesse Jackson's attempt mm-hmm. to consolidate multiple uh, movements into mm-hmm. one sort of uh, you know, major block that could actually be effective. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that. Well, I mean, there there you do see a kind of <clears throat> a chastened veteran new left radical milieu who are still holding to their 60s ideals uh, but who no longer see liberals as the arch enemies. They, they now have something much more powerful to confront, which is the Reagan revolution's dismantling of the welfare state and the whole new deal. And in order to try to fight back against that, they, they also have to fight against neoliberalism, the, the moderate or um, conservative Democrats who are 
pro-corporate in their politics and they kind of coalesce around Jesse Jackson, who himself was an aide to Martin Luther King and had a kind of um, social movement orientation back in that period. Uh, and we use the rainbow as kind of a metaphor for the whole decade. I mean, for us, the 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 80s still had a very vibrant, sizable left, uh, the anti-nuclear movement, the Central America Solidarity Movement. There's all kind of, there's a religious left in that period that's quite active. Um, and it's really not until 1991 that you see the the ultimate um, decline of the left as a force in American politics. And that and that is uh, the cold, the end of the Cold War mm-hmm. was probably one of the most devastating parts of this mm-hmm. uh, of this narrative. What yeah. happens and where are we today? Can you kind of get us to today? Yeah. yeah. Well, the. The left, of course, by the time you get to 1991, hardly anyone on the left sympathizes with the bureaucratic communist states. Um, And in fact, the left made some contributions to their unraveling through its solidarity efforts internationally. But uh, instead of revolutions of popular character in those states that lead to more democratic socialisms, if you will. I mean, still social ownership, but more democratic structures. Instead, there's a market adoption of the market in those areas and kind of washing out of all of world politics as the capitalist market globalizes. Um, And there's a tremendous tilt to the right in those regions and, uh, and in fact, in U.S. politics as the Republicans become themselves ever more right and ever more powerful in American politics. Um, So the whole Clinton era... Blair in the United Kingdom and so forth in the 90s is really a kind of disastrous time in which radicalism is very much back on the margins and almost irrelevant politically. Um, we argue that the period since then, there have been great upsurges of radicalism, like um, the Battle of Seattle in 1999, the 2003 outpourings against the Iraq War, um, the Occupy movement recently. But they tend to balloon in great crescendos of popular sentiment, and then they, they don't don't sustain an organized force that adds up to anything. Um, and so part of our critique in this period is of the kind of anarchistic uh, um, thought patterns uh, that took hold in movements, uh, uh, the refusal, for example, of Occupy to formulate policy demands or put pressure on um, officials. So they take over a park for a while in, in Manhattan, and they're very concerned with their own internal group process, but they never do anything to challenge Wall Street itself. There's no sit-ins in the bank offices and there's no policy measures that they're pushing politicians to adopt and there's no political uh, effort and and they don't organize beyond the year that they were um, flourishing. So uh, one of the things we argue toward the end is that if the left is going to reconstitute itself, it has to get back a bit of that old organizing tradition and evaluation of its own institutions and a kind of institution building mentality. Um, if, it, if it doesn't reclaim that, which was the best of the old left, uh, it's going to continue to have these sort of episodic outbursts followed by great periods of despair, <laughs> which seems to be the radical moment right now. Um, Thank you, uh, Christopher. Uh, we're out of time. Thank you so oh. much. Uh, it was fascinating. It was, I think we'll yeah, talk you. about this some more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, thank you to our uh, Christopher, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. 
It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. 